This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we explore the fourth and fifth chapters of understanding the Jewish roots of Christianity, discussing Paul's relationship to Jewish law and the atonement process we see in Hebrews. Yeah, I feel like uh, we just need to dive right in because I think there's plenty to talk about today. Brent Billings has read the chapters in preparation for today, and I feel like we have more than enough things to talk about. Uh, yeah, it's very exciting. So... <laughs> First, first essay uh, is by David Rudolph, titled, Was Paul Championing a New Freedom From or End to Jewish Law? So, um, David Rudolph, PhD from Cambridge University. He is the director of Messianic Jewish Studies and a professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at the King's University uh, in Texas. And uh, he's written a whole bunch of awesome stuff, including this essay. So, let's... Let's uh, get into it. What, is, what does he have to say in this one? Yeah, it happens to be chapter four of the book that we're using. So if anybody wants a quick reference there, it's the fourth chapter. And then the next one will be the fifth chapter that we talk about today. But yeah, oh man, I just have some stuff like some great quotes out of here right off the bat. Is there anything new worth saying about the subject of Paul and the law? Many do not think so. And so the commentaries recycle the same arguments that have been made for almost 2,000 years. Dang, David Rudolph. Yeah. Take it easy. <laughs> 2,000 years of controversy summed up in uh, a few <laughs> a few short pages here. He goes on, he says this. Uh, one of my favorite paragraphs, probably more than a paragraph, but some I'm done. Here is, uh, here is my little observation that actually makes a big difference. It's that among all the texts that address the issue of Paul and Jewish law, not all of these texts are created equal. There are several texts that are weightier than the rest, and we should privilege these texts. Uh, to followers of Jesus, I realize that this may sound highly unorthodox, since we're used to thinking of all Scripture uh, being the same in value. After all, Paul himself says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, and while that's certainly true, I would argue that some parts of Scripture have greater weight than others when weighing in on the subject of Paul's view of Jewish law as it applies to Jewish people. Uh, he goes on, uh, very next paragraph, keep going. The, the notion that some parts of Scripture have greater weight than others is not foreign to Jewish thinking. In fact, it is normative. So it shouldn't be a, a, a shocker or a surprise to any of our listeners. I think, Brent, we talked about it at least a couple times, if not a few times throughout our study in the first five sessions, that Jews saw, um, obviously, there was a way of interpreting the law, seeing all different commandments as weightier. Like you're going to have to see things with, in order to interpret the law and how to follow it appropriately, you're going to have to have a weight to it. But they also saw a weightiness in Tanakh. So in the three portions of scripture, Torah, Nevahim, and Ketuvim, each one of those had a different weight of importance. So Torah was of uh, primary importance, Nevahim second, and Ketuvim third. Now, how much of it is inspired, Brent? The whole thing. The whole thing's inspired. All three parts, Torah, Nevahim, and Ketuvim, and yet they had different weights to them. If it comes from Moses, it has more weight than if it comes from uh, Isaiah, which has more weight than if it comes from the Psalms. All of it's inspired, and yet there's a, to, a weightiness to it, which is foreign to our Western ears, and yet that's the way that people like Paul and the apostles and Jewish thought saw Scripture, so that's important, and you even see that. I think we showed throughout our study, Brent, uh, a couple times, we even showed how Jesus or Paul would even do this in the way that they used 
the Old Testament. You couldn't say something new from the Psalms that wasn't already said in Torah. Uh, you couldn't undo Torah by using Psalms. Uh, you'd have to interpret your Psalms through your Torah. In the same way, I think what David Rudolph is getting to here, is that w- the same thing starts to apply with the New Testament. Um, I-, I would give more weight and credence and importance and significance to the words of Jesus. I, I hope we all would. How much of it's inspired, Brent? How much of the New Testament is inspired? All of it. All of it. And yet I would give probably more weight to Jesus's teachings, Jesus's words, than Paul. Like, I'm not going to read my Jesus through my Paul, although most of Christianity has. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to read my Paul through my Jesus. I'm going to want to read my John through my Jesus, my Revelation through my Jesus. That, the, there's a weightiness. And that's, that's what Rudolph is arguing for at some point in this essay, right? Is that the Gospels are weightier than the rest of the New Testament? He is, but in, in this argument, even he's saying that there are Pauline texts, like within within the the corpus, the Pauline corpus, as scholars would say, uh, within all the writings of Paul, he's going to say that there are some scriptures that should have prominence, basically from his own mouth, and then also he's going to use some some passages of the book of Acts. He's going to say there are some scriptures that should be weightier than other random proof texts that you can pull from, you know, this part of Galatians or that part of Philippians, simply because of the context that drives those passages. And we're going to look at some of those in our conversation today. And this was basically, you know, the huge conversation in session three, the Hill versus Shammai debate that was going on that Jesus spoke to. Um, So within Torah, what is weightier than something else. And, and so, yeah, this conversation uh, should, should be very familiar and normative to our listeners as well as to the early Jewish thinkers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he, go, he goes on a little bit later in the chapter. He says, if this is accurate, and I think it is, this idea of um, uh, there being weightier passages, he says, if this is accurate, and I think it is, then the next logical question to ask is what are the weightier texts that address the issue of Paul's view of Jewish law in relation to Jewish people? And what should our basis or criterion for deciding which texts are given this privilege status? In answering the second question first, as far as determining which passage gets this status, I propose that the criterion for identifying a weightier text should be that the text itself or the context of the text calls it out as the text to be privileged. Let me put it in more personal terms. If your writings, I'm still reading here from David Rudolph, if your writings sparked controversy and the people were interpreting them in different ways, imagine if we had a podcast, Brent, and things that we had said had sparked controversy. I can't imagine. (laughs) And people were interpreting it in different ways. In some cases, misinterpreting them... uh, misinterpreting them, what would you say to communicate that you are now setting the record straight? How would you drive home the point that you are about to clarify everything and bring closure to the controversy? Maybe you would say, I am now setting the record straight concerning this. This would be the cue that what you are about to share has a special status since it's your intention for this clarification to interpret your previous work. And even if there were to be further misunderstanding, for whatever reason, the fact remains that by giving the clarification, you have taken the initiative to set the record straight. In the same way, there are Pauline texts and texts about Paul that essentially cry out with the words, I am now setting the record straight. These are the weightier texts. These are the closure texts. Have any thoughts about that before we get into what those uh, three passages, a few passages might be, Brent? Uh, I don't think so. It makes a lot of sense to me. Excellent. Well, how about you read to us uh, out of 1 Corinthians? Let's see 
um, which, uh, uh, let's see, Rudolph here says this text definitely rises in prominence because of what it says. Now, let's actually give some context here, Brent, because 1 Corinthians 7 is a weird passage. It's this whole passage on, um, in fact, I'm even going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pull it up myself, Brent. Before you read your passage, I'm going to kind of talk my way through 1 Corinthians 7. So here I go. Getting in the text, Marty. I love it. Yep. Going to do some of my own reading. I'm going to steal it from Brent Billings. Let's see here. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 7. Now, here's the context in Corinth. Corinth is just this, uh, we talked about it in, in session four, this lightning, this cultural lightning rod. It is a port city, a ton of diversity, um, and it, it's seen in a lot of ways. It's seen through the guilds and the guild feasts. It's going to be seen through the Asclopian there. It's going to be seen through all kinds of things. But there's going to be a ton. There's like, there is a sexual revolution, to use language that we are familiar with in our culture. There's a sexual revolution going on in Corinth. There is prostitution around every corner. Like so much of their identity, like think um, Mardi Gras or think uh, the way that culture will see Vegas and the Strip. Um like it's that kind of uh, cultural persona in Corinth. And so there's all this confusion in Corinth about what it means to be people of faith and what is required of the community of God's people there. How do you live appropriately? And so to this, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about. So they have reached out to Paul saying, can you speak into this? Because we're a mess over here. Like we so Paul is trying to give some sense of like, he's trying to interpret. How do we take text and put it into context? How do we take our life and live it out appropriately in Corinth? So he gives all this, um, all of these thoughts. It's not good for a man to have sexual relations. Um, excuse me. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So he starts really basic, like the sexual, the sexual, uh, uh, sexual intercourse should happen within the marriage. Pretty good starting place. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Let's see here. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority of his own body, but yields it to his wife. This mutuality, this mutual submission one to another. Again, this isn't just in a vacuum, an abstract vacuum, Brent. This is happening in the context of Corinth and, and, and a culture full of prostitution. And Paul's saying this, and there is a proper and a holy and a right way to have a sexual relationship. And it's right with each other and, and in a way that respects and serves each other and recognizes humanity and all those things. Now, I have visited Las Vegas, for example. I don't know what it's like to live there, but I have visited. And... It's possible to go there and not actively engage all of this sexual immorality, let's say. Um, but it, it's basically impossible to ignore because if you're out and about at all, you're going to see some advertisement right. or some person or some right. some sort of indication of the things that are happening. So is that what it's like in Corinth where you're able to sort of be around but not necessarily engaged or was it like the entire city is just completely wrapped up in this whole issue. I, I mean, you know, I kind of assume for my own understanding's sake, from what I know from my contextual study, I assume more the latter. I'm not going to say it's completely the latter, but more of this idea that it's pretty much impossible to live and reside in Corinth without being what feels like just encountering that culture all around you all the time. 
Um, and you're right. If you are in Vegas and you go anywhere near – and th- you're right. If you live in Vegas, you don't go to the Strip, yada, yada, yada. You probably don't feel it in some of the same ways. That's that's probably accurate. Um, and yet it's still different to even live in Vegas versus to live in Colorado Springs, right? Um, those are going to be two totally different uh, experiences, and that's what it's going to be like in Corinth, which is what's driving this conversation. It's a unique – the call here is a unique one to try to discern and figure out. So Paul says, do not deprive each other of, uh, you know, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. He's talking about just, this is how we do this appropriately. This is how we keep it. Um, like, this is how you do sex correctly. Uh, now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says, again, listen, if you're unmarried and can stay that way, man, what a great... What you have, you have a smaller list of headaches. You, and again, this is one of those passages we never, we don't spend enough time in because it really affirms the beauty of singleness. Like we live in a culture that always just assumes the marital experience as the norm. Like that's the normative experience is, is this is this marital experience. And yet, Corinthians, Paul says, man, in the, in the world that you live in, let's lift up the the singleness as well, and and notice that for what it is. Um, however. If you got to marry, marry. Like we're we're gonna put we're gonna put sexuality in its proper place. We're gonna put marriage and sexual intercourse in its proper place, and let it be what it's supposed to be, so that it helps us live in Corinth appropriately. To the married, I give this command: not I, but the Lord. Which is a weird. <laughs> there you go, Brent. What do you do with the inspiration of Scripture with that with that verse? What does that mean? <laughs> all, all Scripture is God breathed and inspired, and Paul says, "Not I, but the Lord." So apparently. I would say that that verse is, in, is inspired. Yes, Brent, would you say that? Yeah. So 1 Corinthians uh, 7 verse 10 is an inspired verse? Sure. Absolutely. And yet somehow Paul is letting you know right here in the verse, like, hey, just so you know, this could probably change if I were in Ephesus. This probably changes. Maybe Ephesus is a bad example. This probably changes if I'm in Rome or if I'm in Philippi. This is probably different. This is different. Uh, well, I feel like the way you're saying that you're referring more to verse 12. Where he says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Verse 10 is, not I, but the Lord. Like, this is... Yes. He's adding the weight to verse 10. Right. Correct. Thank you for clarifying that. My brain was in the wrong verse. You are absolutely <laughs> correct. Thank you for that clarification. Well, Brent Billings, know, everybody. It is very easy to get those two statements twisted around. This whole chapter, it's like, so wait a second. Where did, like, did everything leading up to verse 10 is... Are those Paul's thoughts? Now, I'm trying not to get too deep in the exegesis here because I'm trying to give the context to the passage that Rudolph is going to quote because he doesn't give the context and I'm wanting to give the context. Oh, right. We're doing an episode here. Okay. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, even though I know this is just provoking a million questions for our listeners. That's not what this episode is about. To the merit, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. The wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. What is Paul doing? Paul is helping the Corinthian church figure out how to live in this very unique context. He's helping them apply the gospel. He's helping them, if you go back and listen to the epilogue episode in session four, uh, this is what Paul, Paul is up to. He's helping them apply the gospel for Corinth. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. So there's that reference I was talking about, Brent. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Again, what is he doing? He's helping the people of Corinth live in their context. He's not trying to lay down like this is, 
This is the extent of biblical morality everywhere. This is he's trying to help them discern how do you live effectively, appropriately in Corinth? What does the gospel look like when it's lived out in Corinth? But if the unbeliever leaves, um, let it be so. The brother or sister who is not bound, the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here's all this. This is the context. And then Paul utters this passage, which is relevant for the, the topic at hand, Brent. Go ahead and read uh, the next little bit of First Corinthians 7. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you here, uh, Brent, because... Paul just said, this is the rule that I use in how many churches? All the churches. All the churches. So everything prior, the context of this passage is Paul's been talking to them about Corinth, and now Paul's giving an explanation uh, to where he's headed with his reasoning, saying, listen, the reason I'm saying this about Corinth is because this is the rule I have in all the churches. Okay, so now he's going to talk about this broad, this is that statement that Rudolph talks about, I'm here to set the record straight. This is how I think in all churches, so that's why I'm helping you think about what you're doing in Corinth. Does that make sense? Did I say that well? Mm-hmm, I think so. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so the, so the setup is in your specific context to your specific question that you sent me, uh, in, in this culture of sexual free-for-all, here's how you should engage sexuality. Yep. But then we back up and say the framework that we have for all the law is this. Correct. So this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Okay, so the rule for all churches is that we should essentially, if I could rephrase that in my own words, which is very dangerous when doing this with biblical text— my understanding, if I were to rephrase that, is whatever state whatever state you were in when you came to the gospel, when you came to Christ, that if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're not a Jew. If you're a, like, and there's this contentment with our station. Now, contentment doesn't mean like you saw that verse in there, Brent, where it was like, oh, I'm I'm a slave. I guess it's just slavery is just my lot in life, and I should just shut up and no. He's like, if you can uh, win your freedom, if you can pursue those things, do it. But what he's speaking to is this general rule to the churches of uh, whatever state that you come, come to come to Christ, that's the state. And here's what Rudolph says. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's bottom line, his rule in all the churches, is that the circumcised are to remain circumcised and not become uncircumcised. Here, circumcision is the, mon- uh, oh, how do I say that word, Brent? Metonymous. Metonymy is a metonymy mm. for Jewish identity and lifestyle. We talked about that in session four, but I didn't know the awesome word metonymy. But we definitely <laughs> talked about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Paul is saying, if you are Jewish, stay Jewish and do not stop being Jewish. 
i.e. don't assimilate. This is Paul's rule, not just to Corinth, but for all of his congregations. Why does Paul refer to Jews as the circumcised? It is because circumcision was not merely a single act of law-keeping. It was the first act of a full covenant membership and obligation. Circumcision could stand... Say it again, Brent. Uh, metonymously. Yeah, metonymically. Metonymically, yeah. Yeah, metonymically. It's a new word to me as well, so I'm uh, learning the forms. <laughs> Come on, Rudolph. Use, use language that us un, un, untrained, uneducated folk. We're like uneducated fishermen over here. <laughs> Um, for a whole period, for a whole people, precisely because it characterized the people's whole existence, a complete way of life. And he goes on to talk about all the places that we see that. Um, Paul's particular wording, one paragraph later, in 1 Corinthians seven eighteen, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision is a Jewish idiom in the Greek that points back to the Maccabean period where many Hellenistic Jews rejected their Jewish identity, even to the extent of surgically altering their bodies for that they appeared to have a foreskin, uh, so that they appeared to have a foreskin. 1 Maccabees 1, 11 through 15 describes Jews who removed the marks of circumcision as those who have abandoned, abandoned the holy covenant. Uh, so there we go. Brent, anything you want to add before the next one? No, I don't think so. And you can see why Rudolph is saying there's a, um, uh, there's a weightierness to that. Pa- that passage, Paul clearly says, listen, this is my rule for all the churches. A Jew remains a Jew. Uh, a Gentile remains a Gentile. This is how this is. And so therefore, this is what I'm saying to the married and the unmarried and the virgins and the widows. And the, But his rule that he points out very clearly and directly is I have a rule for all the churches. And that rule is however you came, Jew, Gentile, whatever your status is, that's how you come. You, shouldn't, you don't need to change to follow Jesus. If you're a Jew, you follow Jesus as a Jew. If you're a Gentile, you follow Jesus as a Gentile. No matter your station, no matter your status, you get to follow Jesus without having to change to become something else. Now, as far as the um, the all churches line, is that because this letter would have been circulated to other churches other than Corinth? Like, w- would that play a role? Not necessarily. In him saying it that way, like, hey, I know you guys are somewhat aware of what's going on in Corinth and you're reading this other stuff and learning, but Hey, this directly applies to all the churches or is it just, Hey, Corinth, like I'm not, I'm not saying something that's out of line just for you. I'm, I'm, this is what I say to all the churches. I, it, I don't know if it's uh yeah, it wouldn't be odd for a letter to be circulated in that way. Um, it's not even that I would say that the letter to Corinthian church wouldn't have been circulated that way, but I don't think that's why Paul is saying that here. I think Paul's explaining directly to the Corinthians that he has a rule for all the churches, and this is what it is, and that's why he's discerning as he answers their specific question. I'm discerning it this way because I have a rule in all the churches. Married folk aren't supposed to become unmarried, and uh, divorced folk that were already divorced aren't supposed to go back and get remarried. And all these people aren't supposed to change their station or fix what they did wrong, what they would view wrong now in Jesus, but they didn't have Jesus before. You're not supposed to go back and like, I picture this church in absolute chaos where people are like, okay, we get it. And we're supposed to live out the gospel, but now I don't know what to do. Like, am I supposed to go get married again? Or am I supposed to divorce my pagan wife? Or what, what am I supposed to like? Ah! And Paul saying, no, no, no. Like, stay where you're at. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried, unless you need to get married and then get married. If you're married, stay married. It, 
Like there's a proper place for sex. There's a proper thing for this. There's a proper – and whatever station you are, it's okay. You don't have to change because I have this rule for all churches, and that is that however we came to Jesus – that is the way we came to Jesus, Jew or Gentile. Uh, he's going to say in Galatians, you know, male or female, slave nor free, all, everyone comes to Jesus and they get a place at this table and you don't have to change to become something else. So that's Paul's rule for all churches. Okay. Sounds good. Important for Rudolph because he specifically mentions circumcision and very clearly says Jews remain circumcised. Uncircumcised Gentiles remain uncircumcised. So you're not supposed to become Jewish to follow Jesus, nor are you supposed to lose your Jewishness to follow Jesus. Right. Yeah. So that's that's the importance. This idea of metonymy comes up again in the in the second essay, I believe, or the I don't know if the word itself does, or but at least the idea of it, whereas a specific thing is standing Ooh, I like that. in place to represent the whole of a thing. Yeah. So circumcision stands in place to represent the whole of um, of living as a Jew versus living as a Gentile. So yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I hope we get to that second essay today. At this point, I'm talking too much. Okay, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, all right, here we go. Give us Acts 15. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas, to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. All right, here's Rudolph. I'm quoting Rudolph a couple quotes here, separated quotes. Um, While the significance of the Jerusalem Council decision for Exempting Gentile believers from proselyte circumcision and full Torah observance has long been recognized in New Testament studies. The implications for Jewish believers in, in, the Jesus, in Jesus has only recently become a topic of discussion in Acts scholarship. A little bit later, he says, a growing number of New Testament scholars now concur with uh, Wiskegrad, is how I'm going to assume you say that, that an important implication of the J- Jerusalem Council decision is that Jesus-believing Jews were to remain practicing Jews. So it's clear in the decision that you read in the Jerusalem Council, Brent, that Gentiles don't have to take on uh, Jewish uh, t- full Torah observance, circumcision. But what's also clear to a growing number of New Testament scholars is that also implies that the Jews were keeping full Torah observance. Mm, Right. Yeah. It's notable, uh, Rudolph says, that Paul not only participated in the council's deliberations, but also delivered its ruling, the apostolic decree, to the Gentile churches. Uh, Give me the next two verses that show up, Brent, in Acts 15. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Right about a paragraph later, give me the beginning of uh, chapter 16. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. 
The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. All right, so there you go. Paul is delivering this decision, and this decision is going out to the Gentile churches. Another quote here from Rudolph, a very direct quote here. Ecclesial theologians, above all, should recognize the weight of this first church council, which was convened by the apostles to set the record straight regarding the role of Jewish law in the life of the church. So that's the second passage, he says, has a particular weight to it in helping us understand how Paul... And not to be outdone, we have a third passage from Acts 21. Brent, how about you read us that one? When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. All right, I'm going to uh, read here from Rudolph again. This passage is the most explicit statement in the New Testament that Paul lived as a Torah-observant Jew and taught fellow Jews to remain faithful to Jewish law and custom. Luke included this narrative to resolve controversy over this matter in the ecclesia of his day and to provide a crucial frame of reference for how Paul's teaching should be interpreted. According to the text, Paul arrives in Jerusalem where he is informed about a rumor that he taught diaspora Jews not to circumcise their children or keep Jewish customs. While Pauline scholars today often echo this law-free image of Paul, Luke portrays James and the Jerusalem elders as rejecting this rumor. These leaders attempt to clarify everything by asking Paul to purify himself in the temple among four Nazarites and to pay for the sacrifices of the Torah that the Torah requires to complete their vows. The purpose of this public testimony in James' words is to demonstrate that, number one, there is nothing in what they say, as far as the members of the community, have been told about you. So there's nothing to that. That is, the rumor that Paul taught Jews not to keep Jewish law was false. And number two, you yourself also live in observance to the law. A few pages later, uh, Rudolph says, The rumor that Paul taught Jews to abandon Jewish life to spread to Jewish communities throughout the Mediterranean world and resulted in numerous occasions like Acts 21.21, where Paul had to defend himself, 
Uh, Acts 21, 17 through 26 may be seen as the center of a trajectory of seven defenses in Luke's narrative aimed at responding to this false rumor and convincing the reader that Paul remained a Torah observant Jew. And he lists off a bunch of passages here. I'm going to list them off for you guys. Acts 16, 3, 18, 18, 21, 17 through 26, 23, 6, 24, 14, uh, and, and 16, 25, 8, 2817. This is a major theme of Acts. As Isaac Oliver put it, it seemed likely that Acts was written precisely to counter the rumors circulating amongst Jewish followers of Jesus and Jews in general that Paul was an apostate. Leading up to Acts 20, the passage you just read, Brent, uh, this is what's informing the narrative. In the chapters that follow the passage that you just read, there's all kinds of confirmations that we see in Paul's testimonies. Uh, that Rudolph points out. Brent, confirmation number one uh, would be where Paul says, brothers, I am, present tense, a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Uh, confirmation number two, Paul says, "I had, but this I admit to you, I worship the God of our ancestors, believing everything laid down according to the law written in the prophets, I do my best always to have a clear conscience toward God and all the people. Confirmation number three, Paul says, I have in no way committed an offense against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against the emperor. And then last confirmation number four, brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem. So Rudolph then outlines, uh, he just does a, a more intense examination. Uh, he has, how many points does he have here? Five different points, Brent. Uh, first point, he says, James maintains that Paul observes the law. Number two, Luke uses covenant imagery, zealous for the law, Moses, circumcision, Nazarites, ritual purification, temple, sacrifice, Pentecost season. All this adds to the covenant-keeping connotation of uh, Paul's, op- Paul's observance. Um, the Kai in Alastoikais Kai Ados, that's a Greek phrase, Acts 21-24 is where that comes from. Alastoikes Kai Ados is emphatic, as in uh, the, e, the ESV will translate it, you yourself also. I think the NIV just said you yourself, Brent, uh, that you read. The ESV says you yourself also, uh, which Rudolph says is the best translation of that. You yourself also live in observance of the law. It identifies Paul with the antecedent. Um, which is the thousands of Jesus-believing Jews in Jerusalem who are zealous for the law. That's going to be better Greek grammar there. Um, number four, the use of stoikais in, Acts, in that same phrase there suggests a consistency of lifestyle. It means that those Jews and Paul have this ongoing, it's this ongoing uh, lifestyle. And then number five, the passage that you read, Brent, is a mere text of Acts 15. Um, there's a parallel text there. So, oh, I just love that whole chapter. And I need to stop because we're 40 minutes in almost, 35 minutes into this discussion, Brent. And um, I just love that chapter because it said all the things that we said. And anytime I find another group of scholars that say the things that I say, I'm going to like that book. That's a good book right there. Well, and and talking about, uh, you know, we've talked before about how the the canon of the Old Testament is in a different order than the canon of Tanakh. Um, and, and that's a different issue. But regarding the canon of the New Testament and the idea of weightier passages and weightier authors, 
um, he, he argues that, um, or, or he says that when people say like, oh, this, this part of acts can't be true. Like they must be, you know, distorting this or making this up or whatever. And, and that Paul didn't actually live according to Jewish custom. He's like, no, no, he did. This is the weightier thing. And the people who put together the new Testament canon considered it to be so, which is why it's in the order that it is. Oh yeah. I remember that part. That's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great point that you're pulling out. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's so much detail in this chapter. Like, I mean, we're talking like what, 20 pages. Uh, but there's just it's there's so much depth and richness to it. Yeah, it was it was one of the larger chapters, and so relevant for us and our listeners because there's two camps. There's often a camp that's like they think that what we're doing here at the Bayma Podcast is telling everybody that we have to follow the law and be Jewish. And we, I hope, I'm finding we weren't clear enough, but I hope that we were super clear in session four. That's not how we read the scriptures. Not at all. I came out of Galatians with a pint of bacon. I don't understand how people didn't get it. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and we came out of that with Marty. So then there's the other camp that thinks that Marty can eat the pint of bacon, like that I can, that I'm allowed to because we threw off the Jewish stuff. And we tried to be really clear. And I was just so excited to see PhDs from Cambridge and PhDs from Duke University and all these scholars who I don't typically pull from because it's one thing if they're coming from my bibliography. But now there's this whole new group of scholars I'm getting introduced to, Brent, and they're saying the same things, exactly the same things, and articulating it even better than I do. And it's just so exciting to read, and I got so excited, and obviously we're talking about it now on the podcast, but there you go. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, let's move on to chapter five then. I, the one that you were excited about, yeah? Yeah, I, I feel like this uh, opened up a whole new understanding of things to me. So uh, this is by David M. Moffat. Um, he... Uh, has his PhD from Duke University. He is um, a reader in New Testament studies at the University of St. Andrews. I'm not sure what that means, but they do things weird in the UK. So I guess weird titles. I don't know. I'm not really familiar with A, the UK or B, academic stuff in general. So whatever that means, um, he is well accomplished and well written and has spent a lot of time in Hebrews. And so the title of this essay is Jesus' Sacrifice and the Mosaic Logic of Hebrews' New, Co New Covenant Theology. Yes. Uh, first little bit I have highlighted here from Moffat, he says, plainly, Hebrews recognizes differences between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. So I don't get one sentence in here before I automatically was like, I was somewhat frustrated, but not necessarily because of what he does in the chapter, but because of how we use the term New Covenant. Now, if anybody follows me close enough, you know that I struggle with the term new covenant um, just because of the way that Christians have used the idea. There's this new covenant. There's this new dispensation. There's this new thing. I have a hard time personally, Brent, affirming the concept of a new covenant. If we mean new covenant as in renewed covenant, I'm great. If we mean, if we mean new covenant the way that he's going to speak about it in this chapter, I'm okay with that. Like, because he's going to speak of it in this chapter as in, like, there's a new mechanic that we're going to talk about. Like, the old mechanic has passed away, and there's a new mechanic. That's fine. Like, if that's the new covenant, but it's still a part of this original story. Like, if you go back to my to our teaching on Galatians, Brent, and I think we could probably even link that. Um, we could probably link a couple episodes here, Brent, in the show notes. Link Hebrews, the first one, that just kind of it, it helps remind us of the roadmap of Hebrews. Link the, I think we have an episode called like Two Women, Two Covenants, I think, out of Galatians. Yep. 
episode 147 there. And then the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews episode is running a better race, episode 165. Yep. And then we're going to get to a place where we're going to have you plug uh, the second Hebrews atonement. Uh, that's going to be very relevant here as well. So we'll, we'll plug all those in the show notes for quick reference. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we talked about covenant, and you saw me argue that what I really think God's doing is the same thing he's always been doing. The covenant of promise is the covenant of Abraham. I don't really see a new covenant as far as something brand new that's totally, I see God bringing his people along, always in the same story, always in the same covenant. And what he did give us was he gave us a new, I think we referred to it as a more updated mechanic. A better way. So let's let's talk about that. The way Moffat talks about it, he kind of analogizes the yes, um, what we see in Hebrews and what we see in Jesus to the mosaic um, setup. And I think I would go a little bit further and say that it is um, a, a reiteration or a, a like the mosaic was the foundation and this is building on top of it. I think I would do that rather than just saying they're parallel or analogized. So right. I, I think we would probably go a little bit further than Moffat, but uh, I think a, a lot of the ideas are there. So Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's see here. Moffat says he's going to work with three central assumptions, which are really good. And the first one I think is Brent and I's favorite. Um, first, Moffat says, I work here with the assumption that Levitical sacrifice consisted of a process. And this is what was so like, intriguing and exciting to me is that I did not, I, I've never thought about it this way before. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Brent Billings is so excited. He just interrupted me mid sentence. <laughs> that, that, that just happened. Um, let's see here. Uh, it was a process that when it involved an animal victim was not reducible, not reducible to the act of slaughtering the victim. The idea common today I think in Christian thought that sacrifice is equal to something being killed does not align with Jewish scripture or practice sacrifice as the biblical text depict it consists of multiple elements that work together to form a whole process. (laughs) Uh, Skip a little bit later. Given that many today simply assume that animals were actually killed on sacrificial altars, it must be stressed here that according to the biblical text, no animals were killed on any of the altars that the Israelite tabernacle or later at the temple. So animals weren't killed on the altar. They were slaughtered off the altar and then brought portions of them. The sacrifice portion is brought onto the altar, but they are not killed on the altar. To talk about a conviction of not reading my text carefully enough. Right. Because I definitely held this assumption before. And we, this is important because we always equate Jesus on the cross as Jesus' sacrifice on the altar, but that wouldn't be the right kind of parallel. Rather, uh, I'm back to reading Moffat here, quoting Moffat, rather as an animal victim was slaughtered, priests would collect its blood in a bowl. They would then butcher it and take parts of the animal and its blood to various altars, depending on the sacrifice being offered. Uh, Altars, therefore, were not places of slaughter in the Mosaic cultic system. Altars were instead the places where the sacrificial elements were transferred into God's presence and where the use and application of these elements affected certain benefits for the spaces and persons involved. I mean, I'm going to keep reading. Because approaching the altars involved drawing close to God's holy presence on earth, the priestly activities at the altars marked the most weighty or important actions in the process. The giving, 
the giving of tra- or transference of the gifts to God to God. Furthermore, when sacrifices were offered for the purpose of making atonement, the goal was achieved after the priest had burned the parts of the animal's body and applied its blood to the altar. This these activities were essential for atonement to occur. So we have our friend in Jerusalem, Brent, his name is Moshe, and Moshe loves to point out, in fact, I got to get Moshe to read this chapter because he always critiques the writer of Hebrews as not understanding the Levitical system. And and I just think he wants to read it through the lens of Mr. Moffat. Um, Because this is exactly Moffat's point. The, the sacrifice isn't a substitute. The sacrifice isn't, the slaughter isn't happening on the altar. But Moshe would say the point of Jewish sacrifice is not the substitute of the sacrifice, not your substitute, not the death, but it allows you to draw near to God. The process of the sacrifice, Moshe would say, allows you to draw near to God, to approach his presence. It's not about the transaction or the substitute of the slaughter and the sacrifice and the animal. It's about how that process allows you to draw near and cleave to God. The entire process just outlined, Moffat says, therefore makes up a sacrifice. To sum up this first assumption, sacrifice consisted of a ritual process, a series of steps that culminated in the giving of the material sacrifice to God as a pleasing gift. Anything you'd like to add about that first assumption, Brent? Yeah, I just the the idea that it's a process, the idea that it's about drawing closer to God, it's not a separation from God and this is tearing down a wall. It is a I'm not as close to God as I should be, and so this process draws me closer to God. Um the the idea that it's a process in that like it's not just this instantaneous switch where you're all of a sudden closer, like you do have to to walk through that and I just think like the time that it takes to go through that process helps you like realize the broken relationships, the weight of whatever decisions you've made. And yeah, I, I just yeah, I love it. And now that you, now that Moffat has suggested this, if you go back and read Hebrews, you actually realize that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing. There isn't actually this um, substitutionary language. There isn't actually all of this typical Christian theology surrounding atonement and what's happening. What the writer is really doing is talking about process and talking about priest and talking about all those things. So when you go back and read Hebrews, you realize, man, if I actually assume it through a Jewish perspective and a Jewish worldview, it radically changes so much of everything. And I think his his ultimate point is I, he's not taking away from the importance of Jesus' death. He's saying the death is even more than you think it is because it's this part of a much larger process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Moffat says his second assumption concerns the relational dynamics of the sacrifice. Again, not the transaction, but the relationship. If the preceding points are on target, Moffat says, then sacrifice is obviously an aspect of a relationship. There was, in other words, a relational context within which the Levitical sacrifices meaningfully belonged and functioned. My third assumption, he says a few paragraphs later, follows from the second one. Levitical sacrifice made sense within the Levitical covenant. The covenant was the very context within which the priesthood and the tabernacle and later the temple were revealed and set up. So that all of that Levitical sacrifice only makes sense within the Levitical covenant. 
If you try to remove it from the Levitical covenant, it doesn't make sense. If you take if you take the sin offering and try to put it in Jacob's day, it makes no sense. Does that make, is that did I explain that well? Yeah, just because what are we doing? Right. Like there's no established process, there's no established order, there's no established goal. Absolutely. Uh, a little bit later, this is a little bit this is lacking some context for the sake of time. And just that you buy the book yourself. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna jump ahead. And and please do seriously yeah, yeah, for yeah. this chapter alone. It is so good. You've heard it from Brent. I love it. I love it. Uh, Hebrews assumes Moffat says that just as the high priest on earth under the Mosaic covenant was required to take the blood of the atoning sacrifice into the holy of holies to offer it to God in order to atone for the people, so also Jesus, in order to make atonement for his people must not simply be the slaughtered victim, but he must also take the elements of his sacrifice, his own blood and flesh, into God's presence in the heavenly holy of holies to offer himself to God. Um, A little bit later, thus, Hebrews' understanding of Jesus' sacrifice is not reducible only to Jesus' death and the slaughter of a victim. Hebrews knows how Jewish sacrifice was actually carried out. The author is far more careful to think through Jesus' sacrifice in terms of the whole process that constitutes a sacrifice than many modern commentators have recognized. I like that point. Excellent. Uh, Now, my question is, the the author of Hebrews having this understanding of the sacrifice in the Levitical system, does that give us any clues as to who the author of Hebrews might be? Not that we ever came down on a definitive idea, but but do you have any new ideas based on this thought that the the author is so intimately familiar with this process? Oh, as far as the identification of the author it's, uh, themselves, herself. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it affects that necessarily. This is going to be somebody that, yeah, no. I mean, some people might use that to argue for um, one person over the other. Because this person is so educated in Alexandrian thought, because they mirror, and and and, and Moffat is going to even talk about the Philo connections in this chapter. Um because they're so well versed, it wouldn't surprise me, even if it still was, say, a female author or uh, Priscilla, that that they would know these things or reference those things. Whoever it is is definitely educated in Alexandrian thought, and and they love to talk about the um, the elements of the temple, the Levitical cult system that was very prominent in that school of thinking. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing new, no, necessarily. Fair enough. All right, and then uh, he closes, or we're going to close today, just with this um, consideration, uh, uh, this question, is Jesus' death insignificant in Hebrews' thought? Which tells me I must have been doing something right, because everybody asked that question coming out of our podcast, Brett. Um, <laughs> our podcast in Hebrews are like, so did Jesus have to die then? Uh, this is what Moffat says. The first thing to say in response to such a question is that if the common modern understanding, this is such a direct statement. <laughs> I can't even read this without laughing. Okay, I'll try to do this. The first thing to say in response to such a question is that if the common modern understanding of sacrifice as being little more than the act of killing a victim is wrong from the standpoint of both the biblical account of sacrifice in Leviticus and the way Hebrews reflects on Jesus' sacrifice, then this common understanding is simply wrong. (laughs) Yep. As in, if our assumptions were wrong to begin with, then we were just wrong. (laughs) Yep. It may be that contemporary Christian assumptions about sacrifice and Jesus' sacrifice in particular need to be rethought if 
if it matters to modern Christians that these align with the evidence of the biblical text discussed above. And I would hope it matters. <laughs> we would hope so. The second thing to say, however, is that the response to the question raised above is no for at least two reasons. It's not insignificant, is what he's saying. First, if the account of sacrifice noted above is right, then one can see the slaughter of the victim as a constituent part of the blood sacrifice, even if the slaughter is not by itself sufficient to constitute a sacrifice or to achieve the atoning benefits of the sacrifice. So just because it's not the only component of the sacrificial process does not mean it's not, requir- not a required significant part of the process. There is, however, a second reason why Jesus' death is not merely a mundane or insignificant event in Hebrews. Specifically, Hebrews likens Jesus' death to the events that led to the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, Passover and the inauguration of the covenant itself, which he's then going to go on in the next section of his chapter, Brent, to essentially talk about what Hebrews is doing is saying that what the death of Jesus did was it inaugurated a new day. What what Moffat is calling the new covenant. It inaugurates a new, we don't need the temple and the and the cultic uh, practice and the Levitical system and the altar. We don't need that anymore because the very act of this once and for all perfect sacrifice where Jesus not only offered himself as a sacrifice, but also was the priest who did the offering. He did it all. He was the sacrifice. He was the priest. He was the temple. And because this sacrifice was so much better, so much bigger, so much different than any sacrifice we've seen before, what it did was it inaugurated a new day, a new covenant, a renewed understanding of who God was. And now we live in a different situation. So just anything you got to add to that, Brent? This is such a good, it was a good chapter. I agree with you. Yeah. And I just, I would just say, read it. That's all I've got to say. That's so good. And again, I was just so encouraged. I remember reading these chapters. Like I was, I was optimistic after like chapter three, but I was like, ah, this whole book can't be that good. And then I read chapters four and five and was like, they're saying exactly what we said. And it just made me fist pump in the air, even though nobody <laughs> saw it. It was so good. Um, yeah. and so I couldn't wait to share it with others. Yeah. I love it. It kind of sounds like I'm saying we were right. Neener, 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 but I don't mean to come across that way. So there we go. It's just the idea that we're not crazy. I think we're not because <laughs> sometimes we start to wonder, don't we? Brent? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 There is some basis for what we're talking about for real. E- even people outside of the small circle of scholars that I read and influenced me. Apparently there are other people outside those circles that even agree as well so i love that and and as rudolph was saying like the the paul controversy has been ongoing basically since the time of paul so it's not like it's not like it's ever been settled like it's been controversial this whole time so um yeah we're we're just on on a, a different different part of the time continuum arguing for something that people have been arguing about for 2,000 years. So, yep. It's all good. All right. Get yourself a copy of the book. Read through the details yourself. See what you think. Yep. And uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BayModestAption.com. I'll have a link to uh, this book in the show notes as well as those uh, Baymod episodes we we're referring back to. And um, probably some links for these authors if you want to look into more of their stuff. They've, they've both written quite a bit of stuff. So, um, yeah, thanks for joining us on the Baymall Podcast this week. We'll talk to you again soon.